Good morning and uh, welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Each week, I have the joy of interviewing a uh, rabbi scholar from somewhere in North America to discuss the weekly parashat, the weekly reading that is offered on Monday, Thursday, and Saturdays in synagogues throughout the world. The book that we are reading from at this time in the cycle is Genesis. And some of you, the listeners, will know that the first section of Genesis is about the primordial creation. And in chapter 12, we're introduced to Avram, who then becomes Abraham, and Sarai, who eventually becomes Sarah and their covenantal journey to meet with Adonai, uh, who will become the uh, deity of the Israelite people. The story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the story of the matriarchs and the patriarchs. But interestingly enough, the book of Genesis does not really uh, conclude with a focus on the uh, patriarchs. It concludes with a long narrative, which is well known to many of you. It concludes with the narrative about Jacob's uh, son, Joseph. Well known to you from the Broadway musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Well known to you because so much of the narrative is uh, part and parcel of our own lives as we struggle to understand sibling rivalry and relations between uh, different generations. So much of the narrative is about being a stranger in a strange land. And so this week, we're going to take somewhat of a detour and speak not about a particular Parashah, but we're going to uh, study in depth the meaning of uh, the Joseph narrative. Um, I'm going to read to you the last two parashiot of this uh, narrative um, so that you, the listener, can have a context uh, for our conversation. And then I'm going to introduce this week's Darshan, this week's commentator. There are two parashiot that I want to give you an overview in. One parasha is called Miketz. It begins in Genesis 41 and continues through Genesis 44. And then the latter uh, parasha is uh, Genesis 44 through Genesis 47, that's known as Vayikash. Here's the overview. Some of it is certainly very familiar to it. Joseph's imprisonment in Egypt ends when Pharaoh dreams of seven fat cats that are swallowed up by seven lean cows and seven fat ears of grain swallowed by seven lean ears. 
Joseph interprets the dreams to mean that seven years of plenty will be followed by seven years of hunger and advises Pharaoh to store grain during the plentiful years. Joseph appoint, Pharaoh appoints Joseph governor of Egypt. Joseph marries an Egyptian woman, Asenat, daughter of Potiphar, which takes us back to a very interesting uh, episode in previous weeks. And they have two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Famine spreads throughout the region and food can only be attained in Egypt. Ten of Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to purchase grain. The youngest, Benjamin, stays home for Jacob fears for his safety. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they do not recognize him. He accuses them of being spies, insists that they bring Benjamin to prove who they really are, and imprisons Simeon as a hostage. Later, the brothers discover that the money they paid for their provisions has mysteriously been returned to them. This parasha ends by Joseph agreeing, Jacob agreeing to send Benjamin only after the eldest son Judah assumes personal and eternal responsibility for him. This time Joseph receives them kindly, releases Simeon, and invites them to an eventful dinner in his home. But then he plants a silver goblet purportedly imbued with magic powers in Benjamin's sack. When the brothers set out for home the next morning, they are pursued and searched and arrested. Of course, the goblet is discovered. Joseph offers to set them free and retain only Benjamin as his slave. Well, that's not exactly how uh, the brothers expected this to uh, uh, pursue. And so the Torah portion then leads to a powerful uh, denouement. Judah approaches Joseph to plead for the release of Benjamin. Offering himself as a slave to the Egyptian ruler in Benjamin's stead, upon witnessing his brother's loyalty to one another, loyalty that, of course, they had not shared with him, Joseph reveals his identity to them. He says in the words of the Torah, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? The brothers are overcome by shame and remorse, but Joseph confronts them. It was not you who sent me here, but God. It has all been ordained from God to save us in the entire region from famine. The brothers rush back to Canaan with news. Jacob comes to Egypt with his sons and their families, 70 souls in all, and is reunited with his beloved son Joseph after 22 years. On his way to Egypt, he receives the divine promise. Fear not to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation. I will go down with you into Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again. Joseph gathers the wealth of Egypt by selling food and seed during the famine. Pharaoh gives Jacob's family the fertile county of Goshen to settle it. And the children of Israel prosper in their Egyptian exile. Even if you haven't seen the play, you may know this story. But the play makes it quite clear how wonderful this narrative is and tries to address the various themes that are raised by this uh, four chapters, perhaps five chapters of Torah. 
Um, with me this morning to unpack these last parashiot of the Joseph narrative is Rabbi Bradley Bleefeld. Rabbi Bleefeld has a long and illustrious rabbinic career. Today, he serves as a part-time rabbi of Beth Hill of Carmel in Violent, New Jersey. He served as a senior rabbi of Congregation Knesset Israel in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania, the senior rabbi of Temple Israel in Columbus, Ohio, and the senior rabbi of Temple Anshe Chesed in Erie, Pennsylvania. In addition to his rabbinic work, he has done uh, private consulting in the area of biomedical ethics and has uh, been active in the state of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, working through the governor's office and acting as a representative of the governor of Pennsylvania. He has um, a wealth of teaching experience from Allegheny College and the University of Baltimore and Capital University, just to name a few. And I, of course, could go on because he is one of the uh, premier rabbinic uh, forces in American Jewish life. Rabbi Bleefeld, um, please, uh, it is a pleasure to have you return to Jewish faith and Jewish facts. Rabbi Garten, I am so pleased once again that you invited me. And um, I want to tell everyone in the listening audience that you and I go back to rabbinic school together. We were in Israel together in 1970-1971. We studied together. We toured the country together. We broke bread together. And we initiated our graduate rabbinic work as part of the same class. And um, we shared many wonderful moments in our uh, studies together. Uh, and that has only been uh, highlighted by the wealth of the experience and knowledge that you bring to this conversation. And our listeners have always indicated that each and every uh, darshan and each and every commentator brings a unique perspective. This morning, we want to take a rather unusual uh, path into the Joseph story. We're not going to look at the traditional medieval commentators. We're going to look at a more modern commentator, a 20th century commentator, and I want you to introduce the notion of uh, Thomas Mann and his uh, magnus opus entitled Joseph and His Brothers. Because in that lengthy uh, book, four chapters, four volumes, four volumes, um, he uh, begins to unpack some of the essential human uh, dynamics that are found in the story of Joseph. So firstly, let's begin by my asking you, what draws you to Thomas's Ma Thomas Mann's book? He is a remarkable literary creative individual. He was born at the end of the uh, 19th century, lived into the 20th century, and in 1928 
won the Nobel Prize in Literature. He was absolutely brilliant and magnificent in his literary ability. He wrote the original text in German. It's been translated into many, many languages. Four volumes, 193 chapters on the story of Joseph. He takes the four chapters that you provided to us and expands it, includes the story beginning with Rebecca at the well. And so from Rebecca and Jacob through Joseph, 20 biblical chapters, he makes 193 chapters of historical fiction brilliantly, and in so doing encompasses virtually every human emotion. And so you are captivated by his brilliance, and you are captivated, it sounds like, by his uh, complete immersion into the meaning of this story. What do you hypothesize motivated Mon to use Joseph um, of all the biblical stories, both Old Testament and New Testament, because we should remind our listeners that he uh, is not a member of the Jewish people, uh, and uh, we honor his desire to uh, share uh, his wisdom with the world on behalf of the Hebrew text. But what do you think motivated him to find brilliance in this story? I'll share a quote from him. He said, compare yourself, recognize what you are, because no one remains quite who and what he or she was when he or she recognizes him or herself honestly. He said, I helped my own development with this work. This work took him 16 years to compose, and in so doing, he explored the depth of his personality, the depth of the social scene, the depth of his politics, the depth of human emotion. Every page is filled with incredible insight, and his intention was not so much for the reader, quote-unquote, to read the text, but to digest the text. And so he provides for us so much material to consider in our own emotional, psychological, political development. He comes from uh, a, a, an academic milieu, though he's not an academic, which uh, was at the forefront of trying to expand um, society's understanding of the Old Testament. Uh, German Protestantism um, gave to the world the documentary theory placed what we call the Old Testament or the Pentateuch in the center of academic studies and moved uh, beyond the ancient Hebrew uh, religious 
uh, interpretation or uh, Christian religious interpretation. Um, and perhaps uh, it was a religious interpretation for some of those Protestant um, scholars. But Mann found, um, what should we call it, universal themes in the story of Joseph that transcended the particularism of Jacob and his sons. Can you help our uh, audience understand some of the essential themes that um, Mann uh, wrote about? Well, I, I think the most obvious for me in his choice of writing about Joseph is because of who and what Joseph was. Joseph was the dreamer. Joseph was the interpreter of dreams. And I often wondered as I digested through the text, was Thomas Mann also the dreamer? He had to be, to take a sparse biblical narrative, and it is sparse given the broad dynamic of the story, and create a four-volume monumental work of historical narrative. So, aren't we all dreamers, in a way? Aren't we all, Joseph? Don't we all dream? Some of us only dream as children. Pity. Because I think what Thomas Mann wants to convey in, in such a primary text as his is that we can all dream. And in that dream effort, we can improve. We can meet the challenges that confront us as Joseph met his challenges. His brothers were all jealous of him. And yet he mingled with them. They threw him in a pit. They wanted to kill him. Yet he survived. He goes to Egypt. He's raised to the pinnacle of heights of Egyptian power and thrown into a cell, only to be brought up again. And then he's confronted by his brothers. I can only imagine that scene. Can't you? Can't we all? He's estranged from his brothers, and yet, knowing that they wanted to kill him, at the right moment, just at the right moment, he says to them, I'm Joseph. Now, Joseph is living in Egypt. Joseph speaks Egyptian. His brothers don't. His brothers speak Hebrew. In that narrative, do you think Joseph said that to his brothers in his adopted language? No, he spoke their language his language, in order to say, don't be afraid. We speak the same language as we always have. And he doesn't ask them, are you all okay? Are your wives okay? Are your kids okay? He asks one simple question immediately. Does my father live? Does our father live? We are brothers. No matter what came between us, 
We're brothers. And you are here in my presence now. And I can do with you whatever I wish. And what I wish to do is send everybody who is Egyptian out of this room of my court. Because I want to reveal myself to you privately. Because my emotions will overtake me. And perhaps you as well. Long seems to be captivated by the universal emotions of this story. That as he writes, um, he's looking not so much to understand uh, Jacob as the third of the patriarchs. And he's not really interested in um, the journey that the Israelites make uh, to the first uh, locus of exile. He seems, as you describe it, to want to encourage the reader. And as you've suggested, his book is so long that one um, wouldn't have it on their night table for nightly reading. But the Joseph epic is so short, four volumes, a year's worth of reading. At least. More than a summer on the beach novel. Um, The Joseph epic is very brief. And so perhaps he wants to juxtapose the Torah's scarcity of language with what he sees as the human condition and what he sees as the essential humanity. Um, Very much, I guess, fitting with the uh, worldview that he represented in the early uh, uh, 20th century. Um, he was a controversial figure, though he won um, the Nobel Prize for Literature. I think um, our listeners are certainly capable of uh, checking out some of the more controversial aspects of his life and how he um, may have been at odds with some of Germanic um, culture. Uh, His sexuality was one area which figures prominently in some of his other writings, which, um, in fact, the Nobel uh, Committee did not uh, choose to honor the novel um, that most accurately describes his uh, homosexual preferences. They ignored it. Uh, And um, so do you think that Mon remains an icon of biblical interpretation today? I think for those who are willing to, to plumb the depths of the four volumes of Joseph and his brothers, one finds oneself. As I believe, Thomas Mann searched for and found himself. And I think he saw Joseph as the universal dreamer, struggling to interpret not only his own dreams, but the dreams of others. And I think he saw Joseph, along with his brothers and his parents, a universal metaphor for society. You know, Sigmund Freud comes out of that same petri dish of life, 
and writes um, a book about Moses and monotheism. Yes. His kind of understanding about um, the Egyptian petri dish of monotheism. And Mon does the same thing. Uh, I'm going to quote here. It says, Mon, Abraham is repeatedly presented as the man who discovered God. And he uses the Arabic word hanaf, or discoverer. Jacob is uh, Abraham's heir with charge with further elaborating this discovery. And Joseph is surprised to find that here, uh, Mon takes us to that um, uh, scholarly perspective of suggesting that Akhenaten is the pharaoh at the time, uh, which may or may not be true. And Akhenaten is one of the favorites of early German um, um, historical analysis um, in suggesting that there was a brief period of monotheism that corresponded to the time that the Hebrews were in Egypt, and that um, in the book of Exodus, when it says in there, arose a pharaoh who knew not Joseph, the suggestion of Mon and others is this is uh, a pharaoh who was given up the monotheism and return to the pantheon of uh, Egyptian idolatry. But he goes on to say, Akhenaten is not the right person for the path. Joseph's success with Pharaoh is largely due to the latter sympathy for Abrahamic theology. And of course, um, that's where he and Sigmund Freud uh, intersect with this notion of uh, monotheism. And of course, as a Protestant or as an out, uh, as a product of Protestant Germany, um, that would have been a very in appealing perspective, as opposed to the Trinitarian doctrine of the Catholic Church. In the time that's left to us, um, I wanted to know if um, Mann, who of course concludes his books with the blessings that Jacob offers to his sons, finds any great meaning in telling us about those blessings? I would simply offer to you and to our listening audience to conclude with a blessing allows me to highlight this point. The blessing of the biblical text prompts the reader, the one who studies the text, to explore and find him or herself, and in so doing, translate that identity or the realization of that aspect of identity into the relationships within which they exist. So, for example, if Joseph can reconcile with his brothers. And, and those of us with siblings, those of us with family, who have been estranged, particularly at this time of year, might a rereading of that biblical story or a view of Tom Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream or open the text itself in any language, might that prompt us 
to initiate a reconciliation. If Joseph could do it when they wanted to kill him, but he could do it because he was able to rise to the best of who and what he was. Can't we? Uh, My guest this morning, who's eloquently taken us in a journey that's unusual for a show, has been Rabbi Bradley Bleefeld of uh, Pennsylvania and um, Southern New Jersey, Vyland, New Jersey. Uh, Rabbi Bleefeld has uh, offered us such insight into the great work by Thomas Mount Joseph and his brothers. You can hear a um, broadcast of our show on CHRI 99.1 or a podcast on chri.ca or on iTunes or on YouTube. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten from Ottawa, Canada, wishing you shalom and a good day. Shalom.